So for those of you that are here for the first time, we're very glad that you're here. We're actually starting a, a brand new series um, this morning, a series ent- entitled Life Defined. And really it's a picture of who we are as a community. Um, we chose the word life defined really because we have a lot of people that are coming for the first time or, or maybe you've been once or twice, but you're saying really the, as the vine, who are you and, and what defines us? Well, really, we have a set of values and an approach to life that we hold in trust together that that sort of make up who we are. And this six-week series called Life Defined is really going to be a walkthrough of those values and our approach to life. And our values are this, that we are worship-driven, community-minded, and missionally focused as we love God, love people, and follow Jesus. We're pretty simple, but that's our passion. That we value together the idea that we are worship-driven and that we're community-minded, that we want to be missionally focused. And how do we live those things out? Well, we love God because we're loved by Him. We love people and we follow Jesus. Over the next six weeks, we're going to unpack each one of those and look at what the Bible really says about how that's called to be lived in community. And so tonight, or this morning, depending on where you are, I guess it's this morning, we are uh, talking about that first piece, which is to be worship-driven. It's the first value that we hold, and I would suggest the most important one that we hold, which is we as a community are driven by worship. And I think on some level, all of us think we understand the word worship. We know what that means, or at least we have some preconceived notions or paradigms about what worship is. But as with all things, I think that the older we may get or the more mature we may get, we realize the less that we know, right? And I think worship is really one of those things. And as I get older, I realize that all the things I thought I knew, I don't really know at all. And, and I think that we've all been in one of those places in our life where we thought for a moment we had a handle on something, but then something happened and we realized we have no idea what is really going on. It's almost like the Wizard of Oz, right? The guy behind the curtain. There's so many more things going on than what we thought we knew. One of those things for me was was aviation. Not like actually the physics of flight, but like commercial travel. I mean, I pretty much thought I knew how that worked. I mean, the physics of commercial travel for a passenger are pretty simple. You get on, you sit down, you buckle up, you land, you unbuckle, and you leave. I mean, I thought I had a pretty strong handle on that. But you know what? It's actually a lot more complicated than that, right? When I was flying out of Austin one time, not too long ago, I was flying out of Austin to St. Louis, and I was on an American Eagle Express jet. Now, if you've ever been on one of those, they're kind of small, and they have one row of seats on one side and two rows of seats on the other, right? And so you board, and, it's, and, and I'm a big boned fella, and uh, so I board, and I sit on the, uh, the one little row on the, on the side here, and I'm kind of, you know, I kind of have to lean like this because the, the roof's kind of small, and we're getting ready to take off, and we're all buckled up, and I've got this passenger commercial travel thing down. I did all the right things. I sat and I buckled. And, and then the, the stewardess comes on and she says this. She says, we've got a, a little weight distribution problem. We've got, we're going to need some passengers from one side to move to the other. Now, who knew they weighed these planes? Like, I had no idea that I could pull up on the bathroom scale or whatever. And he's like, yeah, we're a little heavy on one side. But she says, we're going to need some people to move from one side to the other. Which, I mean, I'm sure many of you are like, yeah, duh. I'm like, well, I had no idea. I was like, really? So what, what happened? I'll ask that question in a minute. What happens if we don't was my big question. But I started going, okay, well, that's fine. She's going to walk down. She'll pick some people and we'll move over. Four or five people will move over. So she walks down the aisle. She's kind of looking around. She stops where I am and she says, sir, will you move over to the other side? And I go, just me? She's like, just you. And I can almost hear everybody going, fatty. 
fatty. I go, yeah, it must be like 180 pounds heavier on this side. She was like, 180? I was like, yes, in high school. I'm wearing heavy clothes. So she goes, so I'm going to need you to move over. So I do this little walk of shame, right, where everyone's sitting going, oh, the fat guy's on that side. They're going to have to move him over. So I stand up and I gather my treasures from this, the airplane. I, I walk over. And, of course, there's not an empty seat. I've got to sit next to this guy. And so my arm's on him. I'm like, dude, I'm sorry. You know, I had to move over because apparently we were going to go and flop over on our roof if we were heavy. I mean, I get the physics, I think. If you're in a canoe and everybody sits on one rail, it rolls. But what really happens in an airplane? I mean, does it really? You're going to take off. Everything feels good. But then you just sort of flop over on your roof. So I thought I understood this kind of how this aviation system works. Apparently not. So now I'm very careful uh, when I get on a plane because I don't want to, you know, throw off your weight. So if you're ever flying in a plane, you look up, it's like this. It's because I'm probably sitting on that side. I'm going to need to move me over. Well, worship is, is kind of similar in some regards because we all have these preconceived ideas and paradigms about what we believe worship is. Right? We've either grown up in church or we've been around church enough or we've heard enough about church to really think we have a definition of what worship is. Worship is, you know, when we go and what we participate in, what we're doing here, and that's worship. And we know that it's different in different places, but we think we get it. But you know what I think the reality is, is that most of us don't have a deep understanding of what biblical worship really is. And so I thought this morning what we do is we explore our value of being worship-driven is I thought we could really unpack all the things that we have done wrong as the church in worship. So all the ways and things that worship isn't. But then I started thinking, that's not really, that's not really where I want to go. I'd really rather go and challenge us to rethink and throw our paradigms out the window as we rethink what a biblical picture of worship really looks like. But before we get there, I do think there are two things that I need to mention. Two things that I need to mention of, of where I think as the church, Big C, We've gone tragically wrong in terms of our understanding of worship and even have committed at some place a a terrible offense or a tragedy when it comes to how we approach worship. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah. We're going to be a lot of places this morning, but we're going to be in the book of Isaiah especially. So if you've got a Bible, you can grab it. If not, we've got some on the corners. Mike's going to walk around and we're going to walk around and pass them out. And um, if if you don't have a Bible, the way ours work here is you get to keep it. If you know someone that needs it, hang on to it. If not, just stick them back there and we'll pack them up each week. Go ahead and turn to the book of Isaiah if you've got it. We're going to start off in chapter 6 in a little bit, actually a little bit down the road. But before we go to God's Word together, let's pray. Father, we are so grateful this morning for the opportunity to gather in your presence and and to be a part of, of this worship gathering, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would break our paradigms this morning about what it means to understand God, who you are. That you would break our paradigms, Father, in terms of what I thought I always knew. That you would show me that there's so much more to worship and to you than I ever thought possible. Take just a moment in your own heart as you sit there and just ask God to begin to help you rethink what it means for you personally to worship. God, help me rethink what it means for me to worship you. Take just a moment and pray for someone beside you. Just pray that God would begin to move in their heart this morning, that God would do something in their life. Just pray for them, even if you don't know their name.
Father God, we love you and are so grateful for what you're doing in our presence. Open our hearts to your word, penetrate us, and do a new work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, hang on to Isaiah. Put your finger in there. We're going to come back to it in a minute. But I told you the first thing, I, I, because I'm, I'm very passionate about this idea of worship, because I think it's the, the number one biblical component to our Christian lives, okay? I, I feel like I have to, on some level, address two things. Instead of a long laundry list, two things about worship. A misconception and a tragedy, I think, of the church is committed when it comes to our understanding of worship. The first one is this, is that worship, the misconception is that worship is somehow about time, place, and style. We have an understanding about worship that it revolves around a certain time. Sunday morning, Saturday night, Sunday night, whenever it is that we gather to worship, and that it revolves around some certain place. So a building, a facility, a place with four walls, usually a church with all kinds of, of things, accoutrements and stuff to facilitate in worship. And that worship takes place in that location at that specific time. And I can go and I can leave. So I go to worship at 11 and I leave worship at 11 and 55 or 12.5 or 12.15 or whatever. Or the, the third part is that worship is somehow about style. That worship is about traditional or worship is about contemporary or it's about emergent or it's about vintage or it's really about something that I like or dislike in terms of some audio driven style. So I like choir, I like organ, I like guitar, I like piano, whatever. Worship is defined in our culture a lot by style. The problem with those things is that it's just flat out not biblically a definition of worship. In the book of John chapter 4, Jesus is having a conversation with a Samaritan woman. And they don't really associate, Jews don't associate with Samaritans, and Jewish men definitely didn't associate with Samaritan women. And so they're having this conversation, and, and she's saying, first of all, how can you even be talking to me? And then she says, you know what the problem is, is that you Jews tell us Samaritans that the only place to worship is in Jerusalem. But we as Samaritans worship on this mountain in Samaria because they couldn't travel to Jerusalem. They were an outcast people and worship in the temple. They weren't welcomed, first of all. So the Samaritans said, we worship here on this mountain where our forefathers worship. But you Jews say that we have to worship in the temple. We have to go to that location and worship. And Jesus says this to her. He says, a time is coming and has now come. John 4, 23. A time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. See, worship is a condition of our heart. It's how we set ourselves up before God. It didn't take place just in the temple. It didn't take place just on the mountain in Samaria. Worship was a lifestyle of our hearts. And Jesus says true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. In other words, definitions of contemporary traditional, what you like, what you don't like, really don't play into what worship really is. They just become thematic. And it's a misconception that we have and we pick and choose churches in American culture based on what we like. I don't like traditional worship because I just don't like the organ. Or I don't like contemporary because it's so loud. Or, or I don't like this or I don't like that. We pick and choose as if we go to worship in some place for 55 minutes and we've done our duty. Misconception and I'll address it again in a minute. The second thing is the tragedy of worship. I think that one of the greatest offenses, greatest tragedies that our, more churches than we like to admit have committed is that our worship has become powerless and passionless. That the worship of the people of God has become without move of the heart. It has come without passion and without power. Not too long ago, I preached on a text in the book of Acts here about this, this crippled beggar that was healed. But it really plays into this, and so I just want to revisit it for a minute. 
Jesus had since died, has been raised from the dead, and has ascended into heaven. And he has sent the church into the world to tell the story of him. To basically be his witnesses. And so Peter and John are walking into the temple to go tell people about the wondrous miracle of Jesus Christ. And as they're entering the temple, they see this crippled beggar sitting by the gate, waiting for religious people as they pass by to come throw coins his way. It's a pretty good strategic plan because if I sat there long enough as people headed in to do their religious duties, they were kind of bound to throw me some change. So he's sitting there and Peter and John walk up and they stop, which no one ever does, and they look at him, which no one ever did, and they say, listen, we don't have silver or gold, but what I can give you, I give you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, get up and walk. And it says that immediately Peter reaches down, he grabs the guy's hand, and his legs become strong and healed. And it says that the guy burst into the temple, running, shouting, and praising God. Busts right into the religious establishment and just goes crazy. Jumping and singing, and people come running to see what the commotion was about. Now most of us in that story think that we're the Peter and Johns that walk around with our great bag of blessings to bless other people. We're not the crippled beggar, but, but what we can tell you is that God loves you. Here's some, some granola bars or here's some food and, and let me help you do this. And I'm going to bless you as Peter blessed this beggar. And while that's certainly accurate, most of us have forgotten that at one point or time, every single one of us, because the sin of our life is that crippled beggar. Every single one of us has been riddled motionless and dead because of our sin. And yet the God of the universe stopped and had mercy on us through Jesus Christ and gave us brand new life. And that beggar burst into the temple running, shouting, praising at the top of his lungs. If we recognize as a church that we have been given brand new life, redeemed, if we remember that we have been delivered and saved, our worship could not be anything but passionate. But instead we sit at some performance and we watch. How much more are we redeemed, set free people that should be jumping, shouting, and praising God at the top of our lungs in the middle of the religious establishment saying, I was once dead, but I'm alive. See, most of us have forgotten what it means to be saved. Two huge things that we've got to come to grips with before we can even begin to talk about worship. Worship is not about place, location, or style And we've got to fight against having worship that has lost its passion. So check this out. I'm going to offer you a different paradigm this morning, a different definition of worship. One that you probably haven't heard of and one that's going to push a lot of our boundaries. So I want you to take your understanding of worship, what you grew up with, what you thought you knew, and I want you to just hang on to it for a minute. Because I want to introduce you to a little something different. And let's see how those worlds, if they don't collide on some level. A guy by the name of Mark Laberton wrote a book called The Dangerous Act of Worship. And Mark is a pastor at a church in Berkeley, California. And in his book, he introduces a definition of worship that I love because I think it captures the heart of biblical worship. And his definition is this. Worship is the dangerous act of waking up to God and to God's purpose in the world and living lives that actually show it. So if you're jotting this down or if you're you're keeping track of stuff, I want you to hear this. Worship is the dangerous act of waking up to God and to God's purposes in the world and living lives that actually show it. 
We're going to spend a few of our moments unpacking that this morning because I believe this is the biblical picture of worship. And you might be asking, well, what does that really mean? It doesn't say anything about singing. It doesn't say anything about liturgy. It doesn't say anything about what we do. And how is worship dangerous, by the way? Well, let's, let's look at it. We'll break it into three parts. How about that? The first part says this. Worship is the dangerous act of waking up to God. Hang on to that word dangerous. We're going to revisit it in a minute. Worship is the dangerous act of waking up to God. Now, Laverton suggests that the church of Jesus Christ, the people, aren't really dead. They're just asleep. They've actually fallen asleep on the greatness and majesty of who God is. And I couldn't agree more. That most of us have forgotten that the God that we worship is the majestic, holy, wonderful, mighty, transforming, world-making God. See, we worship a God that's too small. A God that we can control. And a God that costs us very little. So it's no wonder worship can be passionless. Because I can hold my God in the palm of my hand. But when we wake up to the fact that God is bigger than all that we know, can understand, or fathom... That God has redeemed us from the very depths, from the very pits, that He's given us reason to live. When we wake up and remember that fact, worship becomes alive. Isaiah chapter 6, I told you we'd get there. Isaiah chapter 6, I want you to hear these words. Isaiah's having a vision about God. And I want you to think about this vision. I want you to say, is that what I see when I see God? Is that the God that fits in the palm of my hand? Listen to this. Isaiah chapter 6, the first five verses. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were the seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Does this sound like the picture of a God that we can control? I mean, think about this imagery, that God was sitting on a throne and that the train of his robe filled the temple. You know, the temple was the greatest thing man could create. I mean, the temple in Jerusalem was, was a magnificent structure. It was the picture of all that we imagined we could create to house God. And Isaiah says that the train of God's robe overflowed it, filled it. That means the very back of the robe of God overflowed the best that man could make for him. That the earth essentially is his footstool. We've got to wake up to the fact that the God that we stand here and sing to, passionlessly, is the most majestic, holy, awe-inspiring God imaginable. And if we understood who we stood before, we would wake up to the idea that worship is dangerous. But the tragedy is that we can walk in these doors and church doors all over America and all over the world this Sunday morning and fill a seat and never have an encounter with God. Worship is the dangerous act of waking up 
to a holy, wonderful, mighty, wondrous, awe-inspiring, powerful God. We need to remember that God isn't something we control, but God is in control. The second part of that definition says this, worship is the dangerous act of waking up to God and to God's purposes in the world. And you might be asking, well, what are the purposes of God and, and really how do they do, do we have anything to do with worship? What are the purposes of God and what do they have to do with worship? See, the truth is, if we're all really honest, we think worship has a lot to do with us. We think it has to do with what we like and what we dislike. And when we go somewhere for lunch, someone will say, oh, how was worship? And we can go, well, you know, it was okay or it was kind of boring or, or whatever. And it's like something we get to pass judgment on as if we liked it or didn't. It's become a religious hollow activity on so many levels. It's something that we do because we know we should or, be, or even because we really want to. But somewhere in the middle, it's, it's lacking. It's become hollow and void. So what's the purpose of God? In the book of Isaiah chapter 1, which we're going to jump into, Isaiah is warning Israel. And the Lord is actually speaking to Israel through Isaiah because their religious offerings and duties have become hollow actions. They've been faithfully doing them, but they've missed a huge point. Listen to these words in Isaiah chapter 1, starting in verse 12. This is the Lord speaking through Isaiah to Israel. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my, stop, my sight. Stop doing what is wrong. Listen to this. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless or the orphan. And plead the case of the widow. Now notice what's going on here, because if this doesn't change your paradigms and understandings about worship, nothing will. Isaiah is saying, literally the Lord speaking through Isaiah is saying this. You're going through all the motions, all the actions, and it's all hollow. In other words, your actions are right, but your heart isn't. You're showing up with all the sacrifices, you're doing it all the right times, you've got the festivals down. But I don't like any of it. In fact, your prayers are even there, and I hate them. Stop. Stop. And then he says this. Learn to do what is right. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless or the orphan. And plead the case of the widow. Notice what God doesn't say. He doesn't say, okay, your worship is hollow. You've really blown it. Here's what needs to happen. You need to start a contemporary service. He doesn't say, here's what you can do. You need to restructure everything, pull out some more this and that, do a little bit better liturgy, and really focus your energy. He actually just says, stop. You've missed the entire point. Your heart is empty and void. 
See, worship that doesn't take account the purposes of God is missing everything. So what are God's purposes with worship? Defend the oppressed. Think about that. Fight for the orphans. Defend the case of the widow. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say raise your hands higher. It doesn't say sing louder. It doesn't say get a bigger choir and buy all new robes. He doesn't say add more people to the band. Then you'll get it. You see how this is a paradigm busting picture of worship? We could put 500 people up here in this band and we can all dress in our best outfits and we can file into this place and our worship can be void, empty, and hollow. But when the true heart of worship becomes partnered with the purposes of God, when we wake up to the fact that God's purposes are about living for Him, it changes everything. And we can have the slickest band and we can have the greatest kind of video-driven stuff and our worship be absolutely empty. Have you ever thought that your worship is to do the purposes of God? Defending the cause of the oppressed, the orphan, the widow. It changes everything. So worship is the dangerous act of waking up to God and waking up to God's purposes in the world. And the third part is this, and living lives that actually show it. What a novel idea. Living lives that actually show it. What that means is that worship is not a 55-minute activity that we come and participate in and then leave. Worship is a condition of our heart that we spend every moment of every day living. If we live lives that reflect the worship of God every day. 1 John 2.6 says this. It's one of my favorite verses. It says this. Whoever claims to live in him, Jesus, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Now be careful, and I always tell people this, be careful with that verse. Because if you really hear it, if you really read it, it will mess up your life. That if you claim to be a Christian, you claim to walk in Jesus, you claim to walk with him, then walk as Jesus did. Now, half our misunderstanding is this, is that we want to create a different picture in how Jesus walked. We want to make a picture that's saying, Jesus was a great teacher, and Jesus did this, and he kind of loved everybody, and so I'm going to love everybody, and I'm going to make sure that I'm just living a good moral life. What you've seen the past eight weeks as we unpacked the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus was a radical. He was a revolutionary, and he turned the world upside down by teaching things that were so countercultural, so life-changing, that we can't encounter them and remain the same. See, living lives of worship, they've got to be lives that walk in the footsteps of Jesus. So really, worship actually takes place when we walk out of these doors, not just when we come in these doors. So I told you we'd come back to this one word, and then we're done, and that's the word dangerous. Mark puts the word dangerous in there. Worship is when we wake up to the the dangerous act of waking up to God and to God's purposes in the world. So why is worship dangerous? Well, worship's dangerous because if we really actually get involved in it, it changes our lives to the point of no recognition of our old self. Because if I realize that worship is an activity that I go to, that it's not an activity that I go and do, 
but it's how I live. It's a condition of my heart. Then it changes everything when I'm at home, when I'm at work, when I'm at school, when I see that homeless person on the side of the road, when I see people in my life. It changes everything. When I see that worship is actually loving the orphan or the fatherless. When I see that worship is fighting for the oppressed, those that are in far off countries that can't fight for themselves, or those people here that can't fight for themselves. We fight for justice for them. When I see that worship is defending the cause of the widow, and the widow in, in Scripture really is the person that can't take care of themselves. In the, old, in the Old and New Testament, widows, they couldn't work. They had no income. They had to rely on everybody else just for food. So now I realize that my worship is taking care of those that have huge needs or any needs. It changes everything. See, what we do here is the gathering point as a community to begin to go and live our worship. So when I say at the vine, our value is first value is that we are worship driven. What that means is that we are driven by the fact that we want to live dangerously and that everything we do begins and ends with God and God's glory, and it doesn't take place just in this room. But that everything that we're about, and that we want to be about, is about following Jesus, walking in those footsteps, and living a life style of worship. So what's your paradigm and understanding of worship? Is it dangerous? Maybe you need to wake up to God. Maybe you need to remember that you're the crippled beggar that needs to burst through the walls of the temple and shout at the top of our lungs about a God that has set us free. Or maybe we need to wake up to God's purposes in the world and confess that all too much we have thought this thing revolves around us. As Dawn comes back up and the team comes back up to lead us in worship, I want to challenge you to rethink your paradigm of worship. And I want you to think, who am I and what is worship to me? I want you to rethink what it means to actually sing with your heart to the God that has redeemed your very life. And as we stand and celebrate and close out together this morning, I want us to hold in trust to each other as a community that we will always attempt to be worship-driven. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that God you are.